Welcome to the podcast. This is a weekly podcast by Denver Transplants. I'm Andrew. And I'm Andrew. And this is You Aren't From Here. Well, hope everybody had a wonderful three-day weekend. If your employer or yourself, if you're self-employed, decided to take the three-day weekend for Martin Luther King uh, Jr. Day. Um, yeah, happy MLK Day. You had a big weekend. Yeah, I actually went down to uh, Miami. Um, I did a fitness competition down there. I won't talk too much about it because it is in the CrossFit realm. And you know what they say about CrossFitters and talking about CrossFit. So What, that you can't get them to shut up? Yep. So <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> but going on, uh, this week is episode 65, and we interviewed Brian Knoll, who is the CEO and founder of Breckenridge Distillery up in Breckenridge, Colorado. If you've never been there, or if you've never been to Breckenridge, you, you should go to Breckenridge 1. And two, if you have been to Breckenridge, the distillery is basically on the way into town. So if it's kind of out on that um, east side, think of the city is where it would be, uh, where the airport lot is, kind of down there. So that's where the actual distillery and that's where the restaurant is. But there also is a tasting room down off of Main Street. So whatever you want to do, if you want to do, I think, the full experience and kind of get everything we would recommend going to the distillery, or if you would want something just to, you know, more of a tasting, don't get the full experience. I think the tasting room's a great option, and it's easy, to, it's walkable if you're staying in downtown Breckenridge. Um, another thing actually that I learned a couple weeks ago about Breckenridge that was really interesting is you can't actually overnight camp in your car. Anywhere. Anywhere. In the town. In the town. Wow. Like the nearest place, you do outside city limits, and it's not very easy to find a place. So if you ever rented, I mean, I'm not trying to be like a homeless person. <laughs> but Pulling up a blanket next to the crepe shop. and <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But if you're trying to camp overnight to go skiing the next morning, and so you're like, hey, you know, instead of renting somewhere or instead of driving up in the morning, I'm going to sleep in my car. You can't actually do that. In any of the lots and not in anywhere in town. Yeah, so what we did is... We Even drove, the pay lots. Yeah, we drove around and all the parking either says on the streets is basically no parking from 2 to 5 a.m. So it's basically they can sweep the streets and can ticket or tow everywhere. And then in the pay lots, those say the only not overnight parking in Breckenridge that we were able to find is the airport lot which is where you park for skiing if you don't want to pay for the gondola lot. And that had, was $10 for overnight parking. And there were signs that said you cannot sleep in your car. It's illegal and you'll be ticketed or towed. Oh, so they're, they're killing the ski bum with that. They yeah. Clearly there's been people there who've done that. Yeah, but. I mean, it, it sounds like back in the day I was reading online that people, they used to explain it as Mad Max where... Yeah, Mad Did it just Max. like add to their cars? Yeah, we well, you know, like Mad Max for like the scene where like they're all the cars come in and like you have all the different camper vans and like the crazy vehicles. That's what like Breckenridge used to be. But now if for some reason you're thinking you can sleep there and ski the next morning, you can't do it. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. That that's interesting. There was in the in the town of Breck there's also that history museum and there's a poster in there where I think it's from the nineties or something. And it says, you know, come to Breckenridge, buy a ski pass, pay for a ski bum. And it sounds like it's not that way anymore, but that's... Yeah. That's, I mean, <laughs> when Vail gets a hold of your mountain, it kind of makes sense. Too nice for it, but yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. So this week, learning uh, a step further on the part series of skis and the different types of skis, um, we're going to finish it out with two kind of a... A three part three A three B. So we first talked about the camber ski, which is you know the one that's more like a banana, where it's uh, it touches on the two ends and your where your foot is is off the ground, and then the reverse camber, also known as the rocker, which is basically a um, a little smile, a little smile. So you can think of and that one is meant for powder. Mm -hmm. The camber is meant for more you know downhilling because there's a more effective edge. 
So what nowadays when people mainly ski and what I think almost, I mean, it's just kind of traditional now is a combo of a camber and a rocker. So the point of that is to, depending on what type of ski you want, but it makes more of an all around ski because you want, it can be somewhat rocker so you can ski powder on those days where you catch, you know, up to probably six inches, I would say so, maybe even more if you're really good. And then camber for when you're going downhilling and you're zooming through blues. Yeah, it kind of keeps, I think, like the best of both worlds, right? Like you always want that float, so you want to have those those tips up as much as you can, but at the same time, sadly, we can't ski powder all the time. So that, that's why you need that camber to be able to cut through some crud and, and make good turns. Yeah, and they said, you know, if you look at your hybrid board, or what they call basically a hybrid between the camber and the rocker, it's going to look kind of like a wave. So a camber, you know, is going to more be just like those two defined uh, edges or touch points, and then the rocker is going to be that distinctive one point. Um, and then there's all different kinds of combos. So I personally ride in what the ski bomb world, I think, calls it, is the dirty mustache. <laughs> <laughs> so my ski actually touches the ski or the snow if you lay it flat and you don't stand on it three times. So it's the front, the middle, and the back. And that allows for more of just like an all-around ski. Primarily, probably a little bit more camber because it does touch the ground three times more than it would be a traditional rocker. Um, yeah. I, and then I would also say that the, the part 3B that I found was really interesting, it didn't talk about this on the skis. I couldn't find anywhere that talked about this, but it talked about a flat board. So for snowboards... We know we've been focusing on a ski, but snowboards have the same type of camber rocker type technology. The only difference is obviously it's one big board instead of two skis. But according to what I read today, they have a flat board, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's just a flat board. So you lay it on the ground, it's all touching. Yeah, all touching. I mean, the ends flare up just because that's just the way boards are made, but this is basically made to keep your effective edge in contact with the snow all the time. So as your weight is more even, it allows for your weight to be even more evenly spread along the edge and actually makes it harder to catch an edge compared to a conventional camber board. Huh. And it's very easy, predictable, smooth ride. The downside is that flat boards can feel less lively and lack a little bit of that quote ollie power. So I think it's probably going to be more beginner snowboard to keep people from snowboarders from catching edges so yeah. they don't get head, head injuries and things like that. So, I don't know. Le read a little bit more about the flat board. I think if you're a beginning snowboarder, it sounds like that might be the best option. Yeah, I wonder if that is what they carry in ski shops and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Because th that would make sense. That seems like it would be a perfect first board. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine, you know, when you go and you put like type one, two, three skier, when you do type one, two, three snowboarder, and you probably do the most basic board, it might be a flat board, but then when you go for the more premium snowboard, it might be more of a, you know, camber, uh, camber rocker combo. Yeah, interesting. And that actually just made me think of something else too. You know, it could be something that we could cover also ski related at some point, maybe a part four B would be din settings. Oh. That's a good point. We do need to go over DIN. And then yeah. there's also the difference in what type of ski. There's called the system ski and there's called the flat ski what? that I just learned. And we'll save that for next week. Okay. It's really simple, but we'll save it for next week. We're a ski podcast now. Yeah. We're <laughs> slowly but surely becoming a ski podcast. <laughs> so ski and snowboard. We're not... We don't no, we don't. Yeah. When we say ski, we mean both. Exactly. All of the above. So... Going forward, you guys always remember camper is that downhill ski. It is touches the ground at the front and back. That rocker ski is more of your powder ski and it basically touches the ground in the Middle. center and it's a, a smiley face. Yeah. And rocker can also be called um, a reverse camper. So remember your terms, be on the mountain, tell them you heard it here first, you aren't from here, and, and that's why you're educated. Yep. So, with that, uh, 
Did you do what did you try this week or did you do where did you go? Uh, I can do either, I guess, because it's... It's technically food and drink. Yeah. Okay. Well, it'll be a, a, a combo because our main episode is kind of a combo with Breckenridge and Distillery being both a restaurant and a drink spot. Yeah. So we'll just do another one. Yeah, this could be a combo too. You can get, um, a not Breck Distillery, but Breck Brewery, which I keep mixing those up. <laughs> that is um, but yeah, so the place I went this week was called Bow Brew House. It's down right next to Larimer Square on 15th Street. So if you kind of walk through Larimer Square where they have all the lights, walk to the end and then turn right, it's in that little block right there. It's also in the old building of Euclid Hall, which used to be a funky little spot uh, named after the mathematician or ge- geometrician maybe, Euclid. Um, and it had all kinds of funky stuff like pig's ears and whatnot. But been totally renovated. It's actually decorated super nicely inside. One of the coolest things I think they have is they turned, you know, in the buildings when you can see the air conditioning ducts? Yeah. And you know how they kind of snake around the building and whatnot? Mm-hmm. So they painted theirs and they made it look like a dragon. And they attached like arms in some places and tail and at the end. And so it's actually decorated really, really well inside. Uh, another really cool thing about it is it's got two levels. And each level actually determines what kind of dining experience you have. So you walk in, the first level, main level is the tap room, which is a bunch of beers, craft cocktails, there's a big bar, and what it is is Chinese street food. And then upstairs is what they call the tea room. So it's a lot more private rooms, larger tables, and that means that you can try a lot of their kind of more exclusive dishes, share it family style. Uh, and enjoy a lot more of kind of a complete meal as opposed to what's on the first floor is a lot more kind of like bar food, just quick stuff. They call it Chinese street food. Uh, so when I went, I sat on the, the first floor. Uh, there's a lot of different areas all around, uh, but we sat kind of near the bar area, uh, ordered a few beers, and then also got a bunch of their um, street food options. Some of my favorites are, it's called Rojia Mo which is spelled R-O-U-J-I-A-M-O. And that's a kind of classic, basically looks like a hamburger type food. Uh, or it's like, I guess what you combine with a hamburger or like a stuffed pita, basically. But it's a little different. Uh, it's, it's from the Western part of China near Xi'an. And they do an in-and-out rojiamua. So same kind of animal style sauce. Really, really good. You know, a bunch of, shaved meat they put in it and, and I highly recommend that uh, the Rojia Moa is about I think it's $12 for one of those and it gives you one of the big ones yeah and would that be like I guess would you be full off one of those or is that kind of more street food is like you order a couple different things to get full yeah so you definitely have to order a bunch of different stuff I think as with many things <laughs> My eyes were bigger than my stomach. So I think between, it was my girlfriend and I, so between the two of us, we ordered maybe six things. I think that was a bit too much. I think you could get one or two uh, of the more appetizer-y, or sorry, of the more entree stuff, like the Rojamoa. And then they also have appetizers, uh, like traditional pot stickers and, and dumplings and whatnot. But yeah, it's, it's definitely a kind of tapas-esque, order a bunch of stuff, try what everyone's having type place okay so would you say like dinner with drinks like if you're on a date it's probably close to what like 150 or so no not quite it's not it's quite. a bit it's a bit cheaper than that um the drinks aren't too too expensive uh i think yeah so a lot of the appetizer uh and, and rojiamoa-esque kind of stuff you get in the 10 to 15 dollar range there's some appetizers as low as eight or nine bucks, like the, the cheese Rangoons or the shrimp cracklings, which are just kind of chips. Um, but everything's in the 10 to $15 range um, with some of the seafood and whatnot getting up close to $20. Um, beyond that, the cocktails are all also pretty affordable. They're $13 and the beers are only around six, $7. So depending on, on how much kind of stuff you get, it, it would probably top out at $100 tax and tip for, for two people 
if you got some cocktails or if you got some, some drinks and whatnot. So yeah. on the whole, pretty affordable and definitely for the quality and also interesting food type, right? Like the combo of In-N-Out and the Rojia I thought was really cool. And there's Chinese characters everywhere. Very, very cool, fun atmosphere. Um, yeah. Would you say the... I don't know what your thoughts are on In-N-Out, but my general thoughts of In-N-Out is it's basically like, you know, a better named McDonald's. <laughs> oh! But really not that much better burgers. Like, I, they're good, but they're not like... I'm not... I've never craved an In-N-Out burger. I've never been, like, obsessed with them. Yeah. So I'm hoping that these don't get bad rap because you say they're similar to In-N-Out. Interesting. I've always heard there's so much In-N-Out hype. There is. There's yeah, a lot so, of hype. So maybe I was, I was hoping that that would excite people, but I don't know. I, I haven't had In-N-Out, the burgers itself, that many times. Um, all I know is that animal sauce is what they're super famous for, which is kind of that like Thousand Island relishy stuff. Yeah. Um, I think this is, is different enough that while it could, you know, harken back to that for the sauce, maybe it's got its own kind of flair. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it should stand out, but yeah, hopefully that doesn't taint it at all in that way. <laughs> okay. So what would you be your rating for it? So I really like this place. I give this place an 8.5. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. Um, That's high. I, I think they're, is a lot of you know Asian fusion type places out there and I'd say this is even more elevated than that. And I think the two floor concept's cool. Haven't tried the tea room yet, but it's always pretty busy. Good music in there. So yeah, I'd give it a, a pretty high 8.5. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's really high. I, I went to that Cholon place and I think I talked to Matt more about it on what did you try. And it's kind of the same thing. It smells Asian fusion places and there's some that like I think can like really do like they're different so people like love them, but then you have their food and it's like it's good but it's not like what you would expect based on the reviews. So it's good to hear this one actually lives up to what I would say hypothetically the reviews are, and you actually really really liked it. And it sounds like just the atmosphere along with the food was really good. Yeah, I'd also say Denver's an interesting place in the sense of. Chinese food restaurants, I feel like there's not a lot yeah. relative to other types of foods. And especially like the different regions of China have a lot of different types of food. So this one actually spans a lot of the different regions and has a lot of those options. So I feel like that's also something that brought it up. Like I've never seen a Rojiao more anywhere else. And I really like those. So that could be a little bit of a, of a bias as well, but it's so, a great place. Yeah. So Andrew would get basically in and out like a 9.5. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> But so maybe watch what his ratings are. We're, we're still learning Andrew's rating system if it's on par with what Matt and I used to rate. So, you know, get out there, try it. Tell us what you think. What's the name of it again? This is Bow Brew House. Bow Brew House over by Lammer Square. So, that is the episode for this week, you guys. Uh, we're going to. Next up is going to be the interview with Brian Nolt, who is the CEO and founder of Breckenridge Distillery. Like we said before, if you haven't been to Breckenridge, one, go to Breckenridge, and two, stop by the distillery or the tap room, try out the restaurant. Uh, maybe you'll get a chance to see Brian there. You can ask him a couple different questions. He has a very interesting story on how he got it all started and kind of what the future is of the brand. So see you guys next week, and have a great week. Have a good one. All right, everybody. We have today Brian Nolt, who is the founder and CEO of Breckenridge Distillery. How's it going, Brian? Doing great. How you doing? Great. Um, so I just start off, simple question. Uh, I just wanted you to just tell us about yourself, tell us about your background and you know how you started Breckenridge Distillery. Yeah, you bet. Um, well, I'm a physician and uh, moved to Colorado in 2003, uh, practicing medicine out here, and uh, sort of thought that's what I would do, work myself to death and leave my kids with a pension, you know, kind of deal, like most doctors. I was, you know, working crazy hours. Uh, when I moved out here, you know, I had worked 105 to 110 hours a week for the last 10 years, and 
got out here and was working slightly less. But when you work like that, you know, you, you don't have much time for doing things outside of work. So you get really weird hobbies. <laughs> and uh, my, my weird hobby was whiskey. It was the only thing that I could really enjoy in, you know, the five minutes of the week that I wasn't trying to catch up on sleep. You know, I could pour myself a glass of crazy whiskey. And so I became a total whiskey nerd and collector of whiskey. And, uh, and then, you know, by the time I got out here in private practice, started making a little bit of money. So that passion and hobby just kind of grew. And I became one of those weird people you read about that are spending like 20 grand on a bottle of whiskey, you know, like that kind of stuff. So uh, scotch was my fave back then. And uh, I'd go to Scotland a short trip and uh, have these meetings set up and taste through these barrels and, um, you know, do these crazy uh, whiskey purchases and smuggle them back to the U.S. And so anyway, that, you know, that that's, I guess, where it all came from. Um, and then um, Breckenridge was kind of like my spot when I could get away. So uh, I was up here one day fly fishing Mohawk Lakes, which is just below Continental Divide and had this epic day. It was early in the season and we're catching a bunch of trout and I was with my buddy who's a ER doc in Vail and the whole day he was complaining about how the med you know the sky was falling in medicine and he wanted out and I just got back from Scotland so I was elated talking about everywhere I had whiskey and you know all this stuff and the light sort of went off and uh at that point I decided to look into maybe trying to open up a little a little distillery in Breckenridge and uh just making the kind of whiskeys I wanted and selling bottles out the door and hopefully not losing all of the money that I'd saved and, you know, stay, stay married, all that kind of stuff. And so that's, that's just really where it all came from. And uh, it took a year or so, and that was back 2007. So um, got the place up and running, brought in some people that were really good at what they did and, um, you know, really, really good whiskey folks. And, and then we just had a lot of success, you know, and kept growing and, and next thing we knew, we were the largest uh, whiskey distillery in Colorado and uh, have been that way ever since. So That's awesome. Did you, uh, I guess, so I, I kind of, I always find this an interesting question of like, at what point did you realize you could stop being a physician and start full-time Breckenridge Distillery? And I guess at what point did you convince your family or wife that you weren't crazy and that you could actually do this? Well, I never figured out the first question. So I believe it or not, I still practice medicine. Um, and it was about um, maybe, oh gosh, it, like seven or eight years ago, I really, that's when I went down to part-time in medicine. And these days I work, you know, just enough to stay sharp kind of deal and do my public service, um, you know, which is a couple months a year of work. Of course, a, a week, a week of work for a doctor isn't five days from nine to five, you know, it's 24 hours a day for seven straight days and usually spend a couple nights in the hospital working all night, you know, so it's, it's still like that. Um, so I, I never figured that out. Um, I really was working multiple full-time jobs for the first several years, you know, um, I would, uh, Start usually in medicine at 7 a.m., finish about 7 p.m., go home, eat dinner, kiss my wife, work till two or three in the morning on distillery stuff and grab a few hours of sleep and, and do it again. So that's, uh, I'm 50 now, so it's like harder to do that, but, but that's, uh, that's, you know, that's the way it went, man. And, um, uh, you know, my wife, she had a pretty good gig before, uh, I started the distillery. So it was kind of a tough sell for her. Um, but you know, I just, I promised her that, um, if I lost everything, I'd find a way to get it all back kind of deal. So, I mean, at one point, um, you know, I had everything sunk into the business. So kids, college funds, pension, everything leveraged, all the money was borrowed by me personally. I personally guaranteed every loan, you know, for millions of dollars at this place. Um, at one point I sold my house in Breckenridge to uh, cover payroll and taxes so that I didn't have to cap call my partners. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of what it takes. I think if you want to, you want to make it these days. Well, Passion was there, so I did it. Yeah, no, that's, I think most people would say that's terrifying, but that's awesome. That's incredible. Like, obviously, you it out and one of the success stories of doing that. Um, I guess, 
starting, so you started the business in 2008. At what point were you like fully up and running? And I guess was there, did you hit quite a bit of a, like I guess a recession or an issue with the 2008 recession, obviously going in the great recession, it was a rough time to start a company. Was there quite a bit that you learned from that? And I guess, was that a tough time? <laughs> um, yeah, sure. So we, um, the trouble with whiskey is you've got to make it an agent. And um, so that's one of the barriers to entry, I think for whiskey distilleries, um, you know, there's a lot of capital up front. And what's really stressful is, um, you know, if you sell product um, and you make money and then you reinvest that money into inventory, the IRS treats you as if you didn't do that. So you pay tax on, on everything you made and, and uh, you don't get to deduct it until it's cost of goods when it's sold. So trying to build your inventory for a growing business is like impossible um, unless you have big financial backing. So um, anyway, but that, that's how it went. We got open to the public in 2011. And then, you know, just started, you know, I was just like, I hope this thing cash flows. And, um, but we just, you know, started winning every award. And when you beat the, all the world's best whiskeys straight up head to head, you, you get a cult following and, you know, and that's sort of what happened to us. I, I looked at the recession as more of an opportunity, um, honestly, because um, while it seems intuitive that that would be a bad time to get into business, there, there's some advantages to jumping in when the economy is in the crapper, honestly, because, you know, uh, uh, properties lose value. Um, and so, you know, I was able to buy our original building for, you know, probably one tenth of what I could buy it today. Um, and, you know, there, there were no supply chain shortages. Uh, there was no crazy inflation. It was kind of the other way. Prices were down, things were cheap, labor was cheap. So it was, I mean, honestly, it was more of a, I think it, it was helpful. Gotcha. Oh, that's awesome. So that's the other thing is, you know, it's like we, we weren't making, I wasn't like a home builder, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, we were making booze and uh, everyone kept drinking through the recession and, um, and they drank through COVID too. So it's, you know, it's been a pretty uh, bomb proof business um, from the consumer side. Yeah. yeah, I was gonna ask, it seemed like, at least from a decent amount of my friends, the COVID created like an increase in drinking. Did you guys see numbers increase during that time period? Or like the initial? Yeah, we definitely did. So um, a lot of the craft distilleries got absolutely killed during COVID um, because they rely so much on, um, you know, tastings and bottle sales at their locations. And so it, it, overall COVID was horrible for craft spirits, but what consumers did was they, they just gravitated to the trusted brands. And so if you were lucky enough to be, you know, if you'd earned it and become one of those trusted brands, your sales went up. So it was, I mean, we were several fold over our projected revenue and sales uh, in the big COVID year because, uh, because of that. So. Gotcha. No, Ducked here Sorry. because you know our restaurant and tasting room and everything was closed, and I had to figure out, you know, here and um, so we navigated through that. So that part, that part was awful, but the wholesale business did incredible. Nice. Uh, it's awesome to hear a success story during COVID. Obviously, um, is it definitely has been, but for small businesses, it's been a little bit tougher. Yep. Um, I've seen more Breckenridge Distillery specifically. Um, what I guess makes you different than other whiskey brands, and then what is your what are you guys most well known for? Yeah, you know, I think so much of our DNA here and our products is is location. So, um, you know, we're it's great to be in Colorado. I think um, for any business you want to market. You know, Colorado's got a good marketable name everywhere. People love Colorado. It's not, you know, you have like Texas, where if you are in Texas and you put Texas on your brand, you'll sell, you'll sell all of it that you want in Texas. You know what I mean? So it's like Texas has this incredible brand power in the state. Colorado has this incredible brand power outside of the state. Um, so the, the location is important, you know, being in Breckenridge, a lot of people know Breckenridge already and have skied here. It's uh, 
you know, alternates kind of year to year with Vail as the most visited ski resort in North America. So there's a lot of people that come through here. We get that name recognition. Um, so I, I think that's uh, that's a pretty distinctive feature is a sense of place here. You know, the, the reason uh, the, the things that are different um, uh, to other whiskey brands, you know, uh, first is just we have a commitment to quality. You know, there, there's a lot of garbage out there. <laughs> And, um, you know, and, and some of it's pretty high priced, right? Um, the thing with Breckenridge is it's all about the quality, everything we do from uh, the way it looks in your hand, the way it looks in the shelf, the color of the juice, whatever it is, how it smells, how it tastes, the mouthfeel, the finish, all of that. So you get this guaranteed commitment of quality, whether it's a vodka or a flavored vodka or gin or whiskey, but we are definitely a whiskey house and best known for our whiskeys. The flagship product for us is, is Breckenridge bourbon. 86 proof is the number one seller. It's in all 50 states. Um, and then we have a, kind of a halo of SKUs with that uh, that give you more. So lots of barrel finishes, high proof whiskeys, reserve blends, um, lots of whiskeys. Some are approachable, some are huge, some are um, you know, perfectly balanced. Others, you know, you push, you push different um, flavor profiles on the whiskeys that that you know whiskey geeks love. So it, it's all about the whiskey here. Gotcha. And you, you kind of referenced it, but what other um, liquors do you guys create or make? Or just yeah, we, yeah, we have an enormous portfolio. So the the seventy percent of our business is whiskey. So it's all the Breckenridge bourbons and Breckenridge whiskeys in the bourbon style. Uh, malt whiskeys, American single malt whiskeys, um, are super popular. The Dark Arts is the best known. And uh, it's this massive whiskey. It has a dragon on the, the, the box and the bottle because it's such an enormous whiskey. And, you know, that's a super cult, cult item. It's very expensive, you know, 300, 400 bucks a bottle. But we, you know, we can't keep it in stock. And we, we talk about that as like the Ferrari monster truck of whiskeys. It's just, it's just massive. Um, and then, um, you know, the water is just so great up here that when you're doing neutral spirits like vodka, you can really appreciate you know how great the vodka is and um you know in a in an 80 proof bottle of vodka um it's 40 percent ethanol and the other 60 percent is your proofing water right so the proofing water up here is just so incredible it has great mouthfeel high mineral content it's got none of the stuff that can ruin a spirit and all the stuff that makes a spirit taste better um so the vodka portfolio is very big for us we're the number one selling colorado vodka by a miles and we have been for ages and uh then our you know our gin we have an american style gin uh, which we launched about six years ago and instantly became the number one selling gin number one selling colorado gin and uh, last year it won world's best gin at the world gin awards you know so um we have a pretty big portfolio um of stuff that's widely available and then we do lots of like fun eclectic stuff that you can only get at the distillery um and, you know, we do we we get Western slope fruits and we press the fruits and do, uh, you know, uh, brandies and things like that. We have a bitter liqueur, which is an Amaro, which uh, is, you know, highly accoladed as well. Um, and, you know, we, we kind of have fun, a lot of collaborations with breweries and stuff. So these small batch uh, uh, beer medleys, uh, imperial stouts and porters and things like that. And we'll trade barrels back and forth, back and forth. They'll age the beer in the barrel, then we'll get the barrel back and put the whiskey in it and then give it back to them and they'll do another beer in it. And, you know, it's uh, that's that stuff's a blast. And most of that, uh, you kind of have to come up to Breck to get. But. Yeah, that's awesome. That's what's really cool. I never, to be honest, I've always done you guys for years of whiskey and didn't know much outside of that. But it sounds like you guys have a really good vodka and really good gin and definitely something off to try. So when you went about like creating Breckenridge Distillery, I guess how did you go about learning how to distill, and how long did it take you to learn that process? Yep. So um, at that at that time, and even still today, like it's it's hard to. I mean, you can't just go apprentice and learn, you know, and like you can with beer. Like you know, you can go to beer school. Um, you can do get a degree in winemaking and enology. You know. Um, but there's really like no place to go learn to distill. So, you know, what most people will do is they'll, they'll intern at a place like, 
like here and work for a few years and learn as much as they can and you know try to get their knowledge that way but back then there really weren't any craft distilleries you know it was not a cool thing to do nobody knew what it was um you, you know i was like oh hey i've got this uh, craft distillery going and they're like oh a brewery I'm like no it's a distillery and they're like oh okay so you make beer I'm like no i don't make beer uh i'm making whiskey and you know no one knew what it was um, at that time, I went out and took uh, the only place you could go really back then was out, out to Petaluma, California. American Distilling Institute had the, these courses, and uh, they were, you know, they were they were they were pretty good. And um, but you know, I met I met the right people out there, and um, and then brought those people in to the distillery, and you ended up bringing people from Petaluma and elsewhere out here to to run the show. So. Um, it, you know, they, they recognized the opportunity, were willing to come in and take a little sweat equity and that kind of thing and, you know, get paid reasonably. Uh, and so that's sort of how the magic happened. You got to put the team together. You know what I mean? It's uh, not a one person show. Uh, you know, we have 120 some employees here these days, right? So it's always been about finding the best people that are all high performers and buy into what you're selling you know, and want to like show up to work and have a blast and they're super proud of what they do and really, you know, the best at what they do. And that's, you know, that's how you do it, man. It's uh, you got to have the passion and the people. And if you don't, you aren't going to make it. Yeah. I would imagine the happy people as you obviously get to full-time live either in Breckenridge or close to it, which I think us in Denver sometimes envy uh, definitely, especially when you guys get 20 inches of snow and, we have to drive up and you guys are right there. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, we're off the hill before you even get here. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> no, that's awesome. And do you guys, um, for being local, obviously you guys are at altitude. Does it, how many difficulties or benefits does that create? And can you detail out some of those? Um, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's process. Yeah, definitely different. Honestly, the, biggest issue with being where we're at is just that you know it, it's high and remote and so logistically it creates all kinds of problems <laughs> as you can imagine you know it's like oh hey we uh, missed our revenue numbers last month because we couldn't get a truck out for five days because you know i-70 was closed or whatever so th those are the biggest issues but altitude makes a huge difference on distillation just like it does with cooking or baking right you've got less atmospheric pressure up here so there's less atmosphere pushing down so things boil at much lower temperatures and that's what you do in distillation. You take a liquid, you heat it to a vapor and then you cool the vapor back down to a liquid. And uh, that's, you know, that's part of what you do with distillation. So boiling points of everything is much lower up here. So things come across at uh, with lower energy input, which is kind of cool. So you use less energy and it's more efficient to distill up here. Um, then, you know, once it becomes that vapor and it comes through the condenser, you're basically running water through a worm tube, you know, those little coily tubes that look like a pigtail that you see on moonshiners and everything else, right? People always wonder what the hell that thing is. It's, there's cold water running through there and that um, cools off the vapor around it and turns that vapor back, back into liquid. And uh, the water temperature up here coming off the tap is so low that it's nice because you also run water at a lower rate. So you use less water in the part of distillation. So um, those are the advantages up front. Um, the other thing we noticed is a big difference in the aging process. So barrels that age up here, they tend to age uh, faster and get more interesting. And, um, you know, barrel aging is all about um, interactions with the wood and, um, you know, what, best we can figure it's the it's just the high pressure low pressure that's always going on in the atmosphere up here um it's i think it's forcing things in and out of the grain in and out of the grain and uh, it just it just creates better whiskeys um uh with the with the whiskeys that we age here so um that's the majority of the process yep. stillage you have to you know when you make whiskey you end up with stillage and you have to get rid of that. Um, and uh, so, you know, one disadvantage is um, there's, you know, they haven't quite perfected uh, the composting thing up here for some reason. So next best bet is feedlots. And there aren't enough feedlots up here that are, or um, ranches that can handle the volume that we do. So uh, we have to, you know, get the spent grain a little further away, which 
is a pain in the butt, but it's working out well. But the nice thing is, you know, they they finish their cattle on our spent grains, and then those are the steaks that we serve in our restaurant. So it's kind of like a full circle thing. A lot of work, but it's worth it. Yeah, awesome. Do you guys? So obviously, the U.S. been number one whiskey in Colorado. Um, do you like Kentucky? Do you still like it? Like, do you still love it? And I guess do you guys run into, you know, people calling you not a true whiskey because you're not in Kentucky or is there any kickback for that? No, um, I mean, you know, the heritage of American whiskey. I mean, I, I'm a whiskey fan just in general, right? So um, all whiskeys, scotch, rye, Japanese whiskey, you know, Canadian whiskey, bourbon, everything. Um, and, you know, bourbon is just one of those uh, many components under that umbrella of whiskey, um, you know, but can Kentucky and, um, you know, adjacent areas, Tennessee, Indiana, even just the heritage there is, um, I mean, if you don't appreciate it, then you're not a whiskey fan. You know what I mean? It's, I mean, there have been hundreds of years and families uh, have toiled and put blood, sweat and tears into this and just the history and uh, the whole, I mean, it's a part of, it's a part of who America is for sure. So no, I'm a huge fan of Kentucky and Kentucky whiskeys and Tennessee whiskeys and Indiana whiskeys. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just all in for, for good whiskey. Um, you know, surprisingly, you would think there would be some animosity maybe, uh, there, but there's really not. Um, when, when we started, you know, they couldn't give whiskey away. Uh, back then. So uh, bourbon, bourbon was in a rut and, um, you know, it was stagnant and they were, they were in the doldrums. Craft whiskey got going and it really helped reinvigorate the category. So I just, I remember being at events and like, uh, you know, some really important guy from, from the Dickel Distillery or um, Heaven Hill or Buffalo Trace or whoever would, you know, they would come up and they say, Hey man, I just want to say thank you because you've really helped invigorate this category and, and we love you. And, you know, so it's, it's really, um, that's kind of how that relationship has worked traditionally. And this business is very much about relationships as well. So that's all still intact. And, and there's just a lot of good people in this business. You know, there's uh, there are, there's misinformation out there about uh, bourbon coming from Kentucky. It does not have to come from Kentucky. It uh, obviously uh, it does have to be made in the United States, and there are a whole bunch of rules around that. And uh, it's funny when you know early on people would come in and say, "Oh, that's not a bourbon; it's not made in Kentucky." And we would just kind of chuckle and say, "Oh, go Google it, my friend, or look up the TTB website, or, you know, or whatever." Or if you just refuse to accept it, that's fine. Uh, that's fine too. But <laughs> as long as you buy a bottle, yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> and I look at it as like a brute. You're going in there and you're insulting somebody at their own. It's not insulting. I feel like when somebody says something like that, and it's like, if you don't know what you're talking about, you're insulting like that. It's just, it's, it's pretty weak to look at. Yeah, you gotta learn to live with it. And, and yeah. Fun with it too. Once you've figured that piece out, then you'll be all right. Yeah, no, completely. And so going into, I guess, a little bit more outside the whiskey within your restaurant and I believe it's the restaurant on site. Can you tell us a little about that and how you went about finding that and getting that going? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the restaurant is here on site. Uh, it's, uh, it's a fantastic place to eat. Food style is, uh, we call it like the tattooed version of fine dining. So it's, uh, you know, the everything that comes out of there is, is amazing. Uh, the quality is there. But again, it's texture, mouthfeel, appearance, all that matters. We do a lot of integration pairing with spirits, as you'd expect. Restaurant's been open about six years now. Um, you know, that is a tough business. I would not recommend being in the restaurant business to anybody, really on, at, at any level. Um, if you own it, your margins are small. The expectations are through the roof. So it is a tough, tough choice if you want to try to run a profitable restaurant. If you work in a restaurant, um, if, you have, if you have worked in a restaurant, you know what I mean. If you haven't, look around next time you're in one and see how hard these people work. And, um, you know, I, I talk a lot with my team, of, you know, in the kitchen about how similar a kitchen is to an OR, you know, the pressure and, and everything else. 
but you don't get paid like you're a doctor when you're cooking, you know? So um, it, it, it's, it's a tough business. We do not have a restaurant because we want to do covers and try to make money off a restaurant. We do the restaurant because it's, um, it's about hospitality here. So this is a destination distillery. It's super important that we uh, have a place that you can come to and have cocktails and uh, sit down and have great meal. And, um, you know, we're trying to impress you and blow you away so that you um, say, man, that freaking Breckenridge distillery is the spot. And I'm going to take a bottle home. And when I get home, I'm going to, you know, make sure my local liquor store has it and I'm going to buy it and I'm going to take it over to my buddy's house next week or when we have a barbecue or whatever. And um, that's how we do it. So it, it's honestly about marketing the, the overall um, brand and portfolio that way. So we call it brand evangelism. We try to create brand evangelists by the people that come through here. There's several hundred thousand people come through here a year. So we see a lot of faces and, um, you know, that's how we compete against the big boys, right? So the companies that spend $350 million in marketing per SKU, you know, we're right there next to them and they're shaking their head, you know, saying, how do you do it? And it's, it's, it's that way. It's by word of mouth and people interactions. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, yeah. Um, that's a, a just great way to spread the brand. And that's awesome that you guys do it that way. Instead of, I think it's just more genuine. It seems like a more definitely local business um, feel to it. So if somebody wants to come locally, I guess, what would you recommend? Would you recommend coming and eating? Would you recommend um, coming and getting a tour? Do the process thing. Yeah, you can show up. Uh, you know, we're open seven days a week for a tasting. You can pop in anytime. We open at 11 in the morning. Um, you can come in and um, you could just walk right in and try a couple products or uh, for free, or you can spend a few bucks and try some, um, you know, different kinds of flights. If you plan ahead, there's different experiences you can book ahead of time, which is totally worth it. Um, we have uh, an area called the Founders Lab where we do these incredible spirits. We do chocolate spirits pairings. We do um, spirits flights with bites from the kitchen that are out of this world. We do whiskey blending labs where you can book a spot ahead of time and uh, you'll spend two hours with our distillers. You'll blend your own whiskey. We'll teach you everything you need to know to make a blend of great whiskey and you take a bottle or more home with you or making an event with your friends or coworkers or whatever. So planning ahead is always best, but you can just pop in. Um, you know, as far as dinner goes, the restaurant is, uh, you know, it's, it's always booked out. So um, it's hard to just roll in and, and uh, walk in for dinner. It's better to uh, plan ahead and make sure you get a reservation. We do, uh, we do lunch as well. Lunches, you can get in for that um, really any day you want. Um, and we're open, uh, we're closed Monday, Tuesday, but open the rest of the week. We also have a tasting room right in the middle of Breckenridge, downtown Breckenridge. So it's right on Main Street, uh, Blue River Plaza, which is this, the center of town. It's right there. You can't miss it. And uh, again, you can pop in there, get a free tasting or spend a few bucks and, you know, taste some more eclectic stuff or do a whiskey flight or whatever you want. Nice. Wow, that's awesome. And for, I guess, you guys have any continued expansion into Denver or possibly other states to open, you know, one-off distilleries or just expand the restaurant? Is there any hopes for that? <laughs> yeah, so um, navigating the three-tier system post-prohibition is, is kind of the game. So uh, Colorado, we're lucky in Colorado, pretty liberal uh, laws for that. You're allowed to have two tasting rooms, and, uh, and we do. So uh, they're both in Breckenridge, so we can't do any more right now. We do have, uh, there's Breckenridge Bourbon Bar at uh, Mile High, though, and so that's actually run by, run by the Broncos. Um, but there's a whiskey bar there, and, uh, you know, it's, we get to uh, make sure we have good stuff in there for people to try. Uh, um, so uh, no expansions in that particular fashion. And I am definitely not interested in doing any more restaurant work than I have to because it is, it's such an uphill climb. But, um, you know, we, we were recently acquired by a publicly traded company called Tilray, who owns uh, one of my favorite beer companies in the world. It's called Sweetwater. Um, they're based out of Atlanta, Georgia, super popular. But they also recently just acquired 
Alpine and Green Flash, which, you know, San Diego area, which are two of the biggest cult beers on the planet. So I'm super, I'm a super fan of those beers. Um, and they just opened a new tasting room um, in Fort Collins. So I am like super stoked about the collaboration opportunities with these guys. So we're under the same roof now and working together on uh, fun and interesting stuff. So uh, a lot of the new stuff coming out will will probably be tied in uh, with Sweetwater. And, um, you know, we're, we do a ton of events in Colorado. So, you know, uh, where possible, expect to see like a 420 IPA from Sweetwater uh, being served alongside uh, Breckers Bourbon um, at events. So it's, uh, I'm super stoked to be working with these guys. And that's, you know, that's the, that's the low hanging fruit right now. Nice. And I guess, will you say on board as kind of running Breckerage Brewery or, or Breckerage Distillery, sorry. Um, and how will that go? Oh, sure. Yeah. Part of the deal is I have to stay. So, um, I'm, I'm here for the foreseeable future and, um, uh, yeah, so not, nothing changing there for sure. Yeah. Matt. Well, congrats on the, on that, uh, acquisition closing and I hope to see, it'll be exciting to see how you guys combined with, uh, Sweetwater. Everybody in Atlanta is obsessed with that beer. So, uh, <laughs> yep. exciting to see how that continues. Um, last kind of question we usually call it the 30 second sales pitch. Um, it's just more for you guys to just put out your name, your guys' name as being a local company or if there's anything we didn't talk about, um, or if, you know, if you just, if you have nothing else to say, then we can just close. Up. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, the brand, it, it's about our fans for sure. Um, that's, that's why we've, uh, grown the way we've grown. So we, we just appreciate the support and, you know, the product is in 50 States. So if you're, uh, if your local liquor store doesn't have it, all you got to do is, uh, say, Hey, I want this, this or that in Breckenridge, um, and they'll bring it in, um, BreckenridgeDistillery.com, uh, great website. You can see all our products. You can see the eclectic stuff. And, you know, I'll just end by saying, um, it's worth, you know, getting on the mailing list or checking in every now and then to see like the crazy awesome stuff that comes out that you can't get uh, the rest of the time. Schedule a trip, come on up to the distillery, let us blow you away and uh, and get the good stuff that your, you know, your friends will be super jealous about. Perfect. You're your first. Uh, thank you, Brian. Um, thank you, everybody. Let us know if you have any more questions for Brian and see if we can get them to answer after the show. But uh, that's Brian Nolt, the CEO and founder of Breckridge Distillery. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, man, thank you.